everybody. This is uh, Chris Rogers with Mapping Tech and Public Safety, and I'm with my uh, cohort, Steve Polikoff in New York, and we have a special guest today, Daniel Stell. He's the Emergency Management GIS Coordinator for the Oregon Department of Emergency Management, and we're just going to have like a roundtable talk about what, you know, is involved in GIS and emergency management, and both Steve and I talk about this quite a bit. We're fire guys, and so we're, we're <clears throat> not quite... We, we don't really mess with emergency management too much in our daily lives. And, but it is a very co important component, especially with uh, the pandemic and with a lot of like natural disasters that we're having currently right now. And so we're just like a, a quick chat about with Dan and, and he do, they do a lot of great work down in Oregon, just south of me. And so but Dan, thanks for uh, coming on our podcast today. And tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do for the Department of Emergency Management Oregon. Sure. Thanks, guys. I've been with the Office of Emergency Management since 2014 in this particular role. And as particularly, the a lot of the work that I deal with revolves around building GIS mapping products related to general emergency management initiatives that we have, as well as dealing with disaster data and management of coordination of GIS information during disasters. The other kind of hat that I wear for the agency revolves around maintenance of our application for gathering instant data. I know a lot of folks deal with systems like WebEOC. Here in Oregon, we deal with, an, it's called the Op Center application, pretty much the same platform using a database to store incident data. But a lot of stuff, and, and I will readily admit, it's been a while since I've done my normal day duties because we've been activated for so long. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's probably a bad time to tell us what your daily tasks are because it, it, it is definitely, and Steve and I have talked about, like I was the first responder that was quarantined with COVID and it's been a pretty long year, but so I, I'm sure normally we'd ask, Hey, what's your daily task? But your uh, daily tasks has probably been gone for about a year and a half now. So t tell us what this past year has been like and then what, how contrast that with uh, what it was like uh pre-pandemic, if you will. It's funny. So this past year, it has been a whirlwind of events. So prior to the pandemic hitting Oregon, we actually dealt with a flooding event in Northeast Oregon. So that started off doing a damage assessments and individual assistance for homes that were impacted by the flooding out, jumped right into helping out with the PDA. So I deal a lot with our recovery team folks, and I'm one of the individuals that Occasionally, they'll send out to help out with damage assessments, working with state and federal partners to gather that data. So it's going to need to see both sides of the house dealing with response and recovery. But yeah, pretty much after the PDAs were done, went back out and started to work on COVID stuff. Um, so with the way that things progressed in Oregon, granted Oregon Health Authority was the lead on this because it's a pandemic response, but trying a lot of efforts and getting a handle on personal protective equipment status, ensuring that we had adequate inventories and surveying our local and tribal partners to check how much was on hand, doing burn rates. Everyone wanted to know what's the number that's being used so we could then get the allocations from the federal government. Lots and lots of stuff, not to mention working with our health authority partners to pull down data as they built systems in Tableau and trying to convert that into GIS mapping solutions because yeah. Tableau wasn't necessarily the friendliest of formats to, to pull data out of. But yeah, and then to top it all off, we entered one of our historic wildfire seasons last year. 
and had over a million acres burned from the September uh, Labor Day fires that we're still doing ongoing recovery efforts from. So a lot of the stuff that we dealt with for that event revolved around evacuation areas. And we actually have the system set up and in place that local agencies are able to update a statewide service of wildfire evacuation boundaries in real time. So we have an accurate picture statewide for an estimation of how many people are evacuated, which is really helpful in trying to determine where to allocate appropriate resources sheltering needs, et cetera. And then as that event progressed, being able to track now all the fires and coordination of damage assessment data. And I have a lot of things to say about that when we get there, but yeah. And then ongoing mass care efforts, which have transitioned to recovery, but still now we have, gosh, probably close to a thousand people that are still in non-congregate sheltering from that event. And a lot of the efforts right now have been revolving around tracking the economic recovery and determining what that looks like. And unfortunately, we're dealing with some issues related to privacy concerns because a lot of the communities that were hard hit aren't necessarily some of the main drivers for the economy for counties. So doing kind of a summary at a county level is a little bit more difficult um, without getting to some more precise detail. Lots of stuff dealing with the fires, ongoing recovery efforts, covid And then just uh, this last weekend, we had a major ice storm go through. So it's just, it's been one thing after another. (laughs) So what are the, some of the GIS products that you put out various events? So right off the bat, when you mentioned the flooding, you were talking about damage assessment. So what kind of data and GIS products are you putting out for damage assessment? And the reason why I asked that specifically is Chris and I have done some episodes and demonstrations about damage assessment. Yeah, we'll readily admit when that flooding, we did not have a solution set up and in place for that. The EM's pretty, sorry if I'm abbreviating, I try not to, but uh, that's why we'll ask you because we don't have a problem. Not knowing <laughs> <laughs> I try to be very cognizant of that stuff, but uh, yeah, so there are, some emergency managers that went out, they initially collected damage data using smart sheets. And when a GIS person from the state fire marshal was sent out to assist, he had to geocode that their basis off of what was submitted on an online right. form. We did attempt to implement a solution using survey one, two, three during the event. But by the time that was sent out, they had the decision and had been collecting data But we do have a standard process of creating a story map for these events. So while we are tracking the event, we have a story map internally that's used that we contribute information into, whether it's pictures, video, tech. And then once we get ready to do the disaster declaration to FEMA, we actually have the story map accompany that so that when they did disaster declaration requests, they actually have pretty much a book that they can read through that talks about what the setup of the event was, what local tribal impacts were there, as well as information about the state response, what was supplied, what were the mass care efforts, what were the transportation impacts, and then a summary of all of the damage assessments that were done for both PA, public assistance, and individual assistance. That's a smart, that's a smart way of doing it. And I think the story map with Ezra, with the AGO story, the hidden gem that, that allows some innovative approaches to be conveying information. 
So very rural parts of the state. And that particular event, there was a snowfall that had hit in the Wallawas in Northeast Oregon, and then a rapid warm-up followed by rain. So you had a rain on snow event combined with melting snow, which pretty much overtopped uh, the dam that's out there near Pendleton, causing some downstream impacts out there. In regards to the story map, actually started doing those, I'm trying to think, in 2017 for a winter storm. I thought, hey, it'd be neat to to do a story map for this. And this is before the new iteration of story maps was out there using the Cascade version of story maps. And I wanted to be able to say, hey, this is a cool way to present and, and I'll deal with is selling the need of GIS. So a yeah. little bit of the, the background, because I, I think this is relevant too. When I came on board into this particular position with our agency, it was all about maintenance of one web mapping application. And that was the map you throw up on the wall, right? There wasn't much yeah. else to it. And I think over you now there was a significant effort for us to sell this to our emergency response partners to tell them, hey, you should really be using this you know, mapping application because it features these key data layers and you do these things. Is that yep. Raptor? Or... <laughs> it's, I always make fun of that because everybody's got to like, name their map app after some yep. animal. And, <laughs> and I, I think I actually mislabeled yours when I talked to you earlier about I thought it was Viper, which is another one. Viper in uh, the state of Virginia. That's right. Yeah. It, but yeah. yeah. Raptor yeah. was that first from the uh, Virtual USA Pilot Project Program. That's and right. uh, that dates back to 2009-2010 days. And multiple, oh. it was originally built in, gosh, what was it? And the city of Portland yeah. had yeah. built yeah. Bridge, which was in Silverlight. When I transferred it over to Web App Builder and JavaScript, because I don't like having to reinvent the wheel. Because honestly, we don't have a lot of time to be able to program or code something on the fly. And for sheer maintenance purposes, it was a lot easier to adapt to adopt a common template out there and then to their needs versus trying to build something. But uh, yeah, you know, starting off with this, it was very much the, the sell to get people to use that app. But I think over time, as the technology has changed, there are more and more products that are out there that don't require necessarily a GIS specialist to maintain or how it's in a way that's a lot easier to read and understand, which I really enjoy because it's easier for me to sell the use of GIS for emergency management because a lot of folks that are using the products, they're never going to be getting a GIS degree. They're not going to know the, of what that is. But man, oh man, are they going to be using the products? We use the story map series template for doing incident briefings. We have whether they're dashboards or or you know, web mapping application that feature information components that we're tracking for particular events. So it's easier to convey that. So the story map for doing the presidential disaster deck was a very easy process to implement. The text was already pulled in coordination with our recovery teams about what damage assessment data was being gathered. They craft the letter. They're helping to gather information from mass carriers. So really a lot of the text was already created there. 
It's just creating a couple of the graphics to go along with it, whether it's a, an app or a, a web map or images or video. But it's very easy to paint that story now. And when you send that to our federal partners, they're able to brief off of that information to their leadership and be able to that thorough start to finish, start to where we're at. So it's ended up working out really nicely. I think we're probably the only ones in Region 10 that do that. That's awesome. So basically what you're saying is that, because it used to be like with like our NAPSIGs, you get like a lot of guys together in one like map and then, which is not always cringe whenever I heard that because it's like, okay, unless you're an expert at seeing and, and how you could interpret it and turn layers on and off, it's garbage. And so you, so basically just correct me if I'm wrong, you're taking kind of process where you have one common op, the cop, which I always, common operating yep. picture app. I hate it because like, yeah, it's everything jammed together and you're off and, and describing for certain particular incidents or workflows yeah. or, or types of problems, you're just showing this is what it is, but you still have that back end with the robust amount of data and stuff like that. You parse it off what you need. Yeah, right? so in the case when we're tracking an event, and I'll use the wildfires as a good example there. We have a story map series set up. The first app that you're presented with is an overview of the fires that you have, all of the fire perimeters, the evacuations, information off of a survey one, two, three form that we had set up for tracking the deceased and missing individuals. So it's presented in a dashboard. You start off there. The next line item down, okay, here's our transportation network status. What roads are open? What roads are closed? then mass care information. So there's key, I like to say essential elements of information, EEIs. We're getting closer and closer to identifying what those particular things are. So if we're dealing with a particular kind of event, we can pretty much template out, here's what the story map series is gonna look like. They're gonna be able, they being planning section and others higher up are gonna know and understand when I walk the map, I know and understand these elements that are being reported on in a consistent manner. So it's really nice and it's really easy from you know, a GIS management perspective. I already know the data elements that I'm gonna be pulling from to be able to feature that. So mm -hmm. I already have the connectors to, if we're dealing with national shelter system data, FEMA has a service that they provide that shows that information that's updated off of the American Red Cross data. So there's key bits and pieces of information that we've already tied in with, and it's just building the maps and apps off of that. But once they're built, they can be used regardless of what type of event you're dealing with. If you talk to a GIS person, it's hard, you're sheltered in your the closet. Basically you were stuck in the closet when the decision makers wanted you out for a map, right? And so it sounds like now you're evolving to like, everybody's participating in the process of creating the information that is geospatial, but they don't even realize that. So what are, what were some of the good things and, and, and challenges you had in like incorporating non GIS type oriented or even techie people involved in the process of, you know, describe story and bring that information together and supporting like that overall need for emergency information. Yeah. So I, I think it starts with, gosh, we, we worked our way backwards. Now we had the Raptor app that was stuck up on the wall. That's great. But honestly, when it came down to brass tacks and 
really with the types of events that we were dealing with now, Grant, I'm going to wipe out the last two years because those are just extreme mm -hmm. events. Uh, but prior to yeah. that, the only time that we really started to think about some additional stuff was heard the initiative for doing story maps for the disaster declaration. Based mm -hmm. upon that, there were certain elements of information that we report out on to our federal partners. So that generated the first list. Okay, tracking mass care information and these key points about tracking transportation network status and these key components about it. And then being able to incorporate the data that was gathered during damage assessments. Now, we have a pretty process for doing public assistance and it's pretty much a form and it's an Excel spreadsheet that they gather that information into. But being able to take that data and then start to translate that. Some of it is narrative-based information, right? We're going to incorporate that in a story map to help tell that story. But some of the information that was other types that were gathered, there were people that went out and took photos of the damages. Cool. Can we take those and then start to and build a GIS layer? Depends on the camera that they used in the field. But fortunate enough, the camera actually had the long sort of, so being able to translate that into a GIS layer to help tell the story. And you build an attachment viewer app that shows you in 10 minutes, here's all of the information that you gathered as a part of that event. So it was working our way backwards to identify those pieces of information. Once they saw what the end product was, because Honestly, our folks are very visual in nature. I can talk turkey with them, but honestly, if they don't see a product, they don't quite understand what I'm talking about. And that's not a dig on anyone. It's just, we're all very visual in nature. And being able to tell that complete story start to finish really started to help folks think about, hey, we can do this for the recovery side of the house. How can we transfer that back to the response side of the house. And it, it was an evolution over time. And it ended up being this, you're building more of a network about sharing information and producing consistent books instead of, well, I'm gonna look at that spaghetti on the wall <laughs> that Raptor app is. Yeah. And, and I think some of the, the big benefits that came about from it was being able to integrate GIS very early on to manage situation data. You know, when you have app thrown up on the wall and you, you say, okay, I, I see these color-coded boundaries that show weather watches and warnings. Okay, so be it. Uh, but when I start telling the story a little bit more about that and what the downstream impacts to that information are, that really helps to gel and say, hey, actually... I need to get this piece of information. Daniel, do you have that data or do you know the source of that information? So it, it really built up what that GIS capability was. Um, the other kind of key component too was we didn't necessarily have a planning section prior to 2016. We built a planning section for the Cascadia Rising exercise in 2016. Major federal level event involved military partners for the Ardent Century uh, exercise as a part of that. But we didn't really have a planning section. 
but we had GIS. It was that guy sitting in the corner that was maintaining this yeah. app on the wall. Yeah. Um, so it really, there were, there were certain things that we tested over time that we built up the planning section to be this, okay, we're producing products as a part of that. GIS has this kickstart because they know where the source of this information is. They know how to help tell and explain what we're seeing. So I, I know I bounced around quite a bit and answered your, your question. Oh, it, it was great. You know, I, I, I always admired you guys. And then granted, I'm in the state just north of you and stuff and um, somewhat envious of some of your examples because I've seen some <laughs> gas station maps taped to EMC walls just recently. You know, like the ones that have advertisements on. <laughs> So, so needless to say, I, I can appreciate it. Listening to what you were saying, I, I was just thinking of a few things, but let's go back a little bit to the photos that you were discussing and that people, have you ever considered soliciting the help of the GIS Corps? <laughs> they were actually, we, Chris and I interviewed them a while back and also through, through, the National Alliance for Public Safety GIS and, and their Slack page, I see all their messages. And I know one of the things that they do is they, you know, scour social media yeah. and grab these photos. They actually, I can't think of the right term I'm looking for, but it's um, crowdsourcing. Ver yeah. verify them and make sure they're legitimate photos. And when they don't have an XY coordinate, they try their best to actually locate where the picture was taken and then they post it in in a, a is it a story map chris or maybe just a, a web map viewer where i think that some examples i thought were story maps yeah. but i haven't looked at it but i'm just curious have you ever considered using them as a resource to bring in that crowdsource data at this point we have not and i think there's a little bit of a hesitancy about that because we haven't determined how we're going to use crowdsourced information. It's a big unknown. And I think as we start to build out and progress further, we're going to know based upon what sort of event we're dealing with, what kind of information we would want gathered. And I'm sorry, there was a <laughs> crowdsourced is really one of the the big kind of key missing pieces that I don't think that we have figured out a way to internally address that. Right. We pretty much rely upon already established official sources for data, whether it's our teams that go out or emergency management personnel that are collecting that information. One of the things I like that they do, when I initially saw their applications, for like, say, a hurricane down in Florida. Initially, my thought was, well, okay, well, you're just grabbing photos off social media and, and posting them. But then when talking to them a little bit, and again, Chris and I interviewing them, you know, they that's not what they do. They really go out and verify that these are legitimate photos and the locations of them. It's a pretty interesting process. My, my other question, again, going back to floods you had said that you were using the tableau data you didn't at the time able to quickly put together something with survey one two three plus all this data was collected do you have plans in the future of having 
a ready to go app for say damage assessment? Yes. And in fact, that is a project I'm working on right now. Um, based upon the fires, so a little bit, I'll jump into the lessons learned from fires because it's very pertinent to this question. Uh, I'll tell you what, let me, before you, as I was going to ask a related question, and let me throw the related question out and give you permission to answer them because I, I wanted to know about the lessons learned related to the fires and contrast that with the COVID response mm -hmm. and because you know, to me, it's some of the fire wildland fires are pretty easy because we have an established process. We understand it, and it's there. It's fire, but COVID, which is basically an invisible fire in a sense that you have a wave of germs through. The, it's a spread, just like fire. Mm -hmm. And so, if you wanted to touch on that as well, uh, lessons learned with COVID and translate it to fire, so we can start with fire first, and then if it feels right talk about COVID. Okay. yeah and if you could figure out chris's question can you explain it to me <laughs> he, he wants to know he wants to i think he, know, I think he knows yeah. what i'm talking I, about no i'm following what chris laid down there okay i wasn't sure if it was chris's accent <laughs> <laughs> he's got my he's got my accent <laughs> so yeah to start with uh, so the earlier question about damage assessment, having a ready-to-use app, the project that I'm working on right now is having a ready-to-use template for gathering damage assessment information, specifically for individual assistance and business impacts. This was directly related as an after-action item from the fires last year. We had eight declared counties for the fires last year, and each county had at least one authoritative source and none of them matched between counties. So everyone wanted to know what is the destroyed number of homes and having to sort through and filter through that data when you now out of those eight, only two had anywhere close to the same field schema was very difficult. It, it spent a lot of time for us to try and sift through, filter through that data some of the field names weren't exactly easy to read or understand. And based upon that, it's, okay, we're not going to be dealing with this again in the future. How do we come up with a solution based upon what information, first and foremost, do we gather so that we can send it up to our federal partners? Because ultimately, we at OEM, we are the conduit up to, to federal to be able to do the disaster. So... What are our requirements, which are based upon what the federal requirements are? Add into that, what local requirements do they have? Some jurisdictions say, hey, we actually use the ATC forms for doing post-earthquake, post-flood surveys. How do we incorporate that process? Do you have a public reporting component? How do we incorporate that? Business impacts. Is there a template out there? Not necessarily. There's a couple of there's at least one county that has like an online forum where people can enter in business impacts. So being able to create a master template and we're intending on trying to use survey one, two, three and or quick capture to be able to address that particular need. But once we address kind of what these requirements are, what the operational processes are at the local level and tribal level, being able to design and build a template, whether it's an XLS form that they can use within their own portal or utilizing Oregon's ArcGIS online 
to be able to have kind of this master service of information, we offer these solutions as a menu suite based upon what your local capability is. If you have super nerdy GIS people that want to have these tied in with their building footprints that they're maintaining on a regular basis, great. Here's the menu options that you have. And then clear over to those jurisdictions where it's an army of one. There's only one emergency manager and they have zero staff to support them. One of the EMs that I was talking with, he was like, yeah, when we have a disaster, they just call me on myself. Whoa, hold on. You don't want to be doing that during an event. So how do we help streamline those processes, be able to provide a statewide solution or a statewide template for use so that when that information is gathered, there's a standard set of fields. We all know and understand how that information is collected, what it looks like on the back end, can visualize products that are consistently to be able to have kind of that get to those numbers that people are always looking for. We also noticed during the wildfires last year, man, there's a lot of hands in the pot when you talk about damage assessment information. Um, some jurisdictions, we had four or five different data sources. For example, like one jurisdiction, State Farm Marshall went out, did their assessment. Then uh, American Red Cross was doing their assessments. The county did their assessment. They did a follow-on assessment. And in some cases, FEMA contracted out with the NGA to go and do a geospatial damage assessment. Not all of those efforts were necessarily coordinated together. And it's my intent and plan as a part of this project that we'll have kind of a clearly defined, whether it's a, like a resource guide, a training, and a tool solution, an all-encompassing solution, so that when we're dealing with an event like this again, or something that requires damage assessments to be done, we have a template pre-built, preset, ready to use. People are trained on how to use that tool. There's a resource guide that they can use that helps explain the team composition, what sort of questions are going to be gathered, and recommendations if you're going out in the field and you're needing to snap a photo, snap it five feet away from the front of the structure or some sort of way to have uh, uniform data gathering as a part of that effort too. So a lot of stuff that uh, I'm working on related to that particular initiative, uh, very aggressive timeline. I'm trying to get the solution at least templated out and built out ready to go by the end of April or early May so that we can have something set up and in place prior to the start of fire season. So going back to the question about the difference between the fires and COVID. Oh, okay. Let me pause real quick. I have a question more related to yeah. damage assessment. And I apologize, Steve, for asking a very complex question. <laughs> I should have that So, because it, it was overly complex, but we'll talk about the COVID stuff in a bit. But do you think in terms of damage assessment, because likely it's going to be, and I always have struggles with a lot of damage assessment templates because they get more and more complex as more people get involved with it and stuff. And if you were to like just design the most simplest damage assessment tool possible, what would like be like the two or three key mm. factors would be? Yeah. So if we had to get, if we had to get it down to two fields, I would say the address and ideally parsed out if possible and the damage category. So those are the two key elements that we went off for kind of composing what that end number was. Is it a destroyed structure? or not a destroyed structure. 
if you gave me a rope and said, I want a third field, I'd say the structured type. And that's strictly because there are certain federal assistance programs based upon what type of structure was damaged or destroyed as a part of that. That was one of the key things that we realized as we were coordinating with our state agency partners, because Oregon may have a program to help mobile home parks or manufactured home parks. And knowing Mm -hmm. the number of manufactured homes that were destroyed, and if they were in a manufactured home park, may help to identify where areas of need are. So there's a couple of different things that we have there, but I agree too, Chris. It's With so many hands being in the pot, everyone wants to have their own little template or, hey, I would really like to have these 10 or 20 things. And then it turns into, hey, I'm going to spend two hours collecting one point in the field. So we're working on trying to address that. And yeah, I I always think the challenge because you have like different damage types assessment, you know, especially like you have like you use our damage assessment, you have, and I, I deal with a company that has damage assessment and even like different states have four or five categories for damage assessment. And, and honestly, to me at this point, I think there should be two. It should be, did the fire stay on the outside or did the fire go to the inside? If it's the inside, it's totally yeah. damaged. You know, I mean, if it's a, if you have a structured fire and you have fire inside, even if it's a small kitchen fire, the whole house has been damaged. Yeah. This one extent or the others, it's not livable. You can't live. Yeah, but I I think at this point, you know, Daniel, you don't know my background too much. Currently, the company that I work for, I'm involved with Next Generation Nine One One, and I've learned a lot about it since working for this company. They follow. follow, I'm sorry, not my company. The whole Next Generation Nine One One model is based on these. NINA, the National Emergency Numbering Association, and their standards of data. And and it's very important to have those standards to work with neighboring jurisdictions and and neighboring 911 systems. And honestly, be great. And yeah, it takes a long time to put these documents together. Uh, You know, they somewhat recently, within the last few couple of years, came out with a GIS database model. And now they're working further. I'm actually sitting on the road center line committee. And I, again, these standards, like you said, it, it's very good because now when you're working with your neighbor and jurisdictions, everybody's on the same page. Yeah. And, and essentially that's what incident management is about standards and keeping everything consistent in this way. If the, FDMY incident management team comes out to Oregon. You guys are, everybody's on the same page. And Chris and I going back a long ways now have looked at things for GISS in, in, in essentially from about wildfires. And it was very specific to wildfires. And we've been, you know, working on symbology again, to make it somewhat consistent, even though, the symbology we work on, it's not called a standard, but, and I don't know where it begins. I don't know if it's at that local level or, or FEMA's even working on it at this point, but I, I think those standards are a good thing. And yeah, everybody's going to have their opinion. Oh, we need this field in this, 
need this field. And that's why these committees are good to come up with a basis. And that doesn't mean it can't be adjusted later, but I think standards are a good thing. And, and I say from, you know, my standpoint, it was easy to sell this particular solution or this implementation because number one, we're going to be providing it free of charge to the local and partners on it, but also they know what the pain is, right? The, the pain we just experienced in trying to decipher the information that was gathered. The other component, yeah, during an event, a lot of times your GIS staff are going to be completely overwhelmed with a lot of information requests. So if we're pulling in an EMAC team, like FDNY coming out here to help out managing incident data or helping to do damage assessments. Hey, here's our template. Here's the survey one, two, three form. Here's the resource guide that we run with it. It's a lot easier to get people up and running when you're using already a commercial off the shelf, COT solution that we're not the only ones looking at building a template or having a statewide template for gathering this type of information. Oregon may have a little bit of a slightly different flavor because some of our partners need a little bit more additional data. But in general, the solution that we're deploying or we're looking at deploying here is something that is almost an industry standard or other states have a lot of experience dealing with that. And if we're requesting EMAC resources, we can actually write in that EMAC request Survey one, two, three experience preferred or required as a part of that. So that the people that we're getting in have that knowledge and experience and can help implement that. And that was one of the, one of the biggest lessons learned at the FDMY during 9-11. And I've said this before, typically FDMY has never really needed an outside agency's help with the, with the amount of resources that we have. People were calling us for help, but, but during September 11, it was really the first time that we needed somebody else's help. And the biggest lesson learned is when these teams came from other parts of the country, again, they were all talking the same language and we weren't. And then when the federal government said, everybody has to be on the incident management or, or NIMS, National Incident Management NIMS, system, yep. the FDNY bought right into it and loved the system and, and then eventually became their own incident management team. And like I said, from, from a GIS perspective, I, I don't see those standards there too much, but I think it's really something that could really benefit the entire country. And like I said, and now that I'm learning more standards from a next-gen 911 system um, perspective and, and Nina, a, again, it just seems so beneficial. Official. And but it's not just something thrown together. It's well thought out. And, and it's funny now that I've learned about the standards, the database model and the certain fields that they use, it all makes perfect sense. And honestly, even from a, a non next gen 911 system, I, I think these are great models. You know, even if you're just putting together a road center line or address points or it's, it's great information and like I said, very well thought out and, and laid out in the data. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I, I would like to see more of a national model and, and stand standards from a GIS perspective. And 
you know, one of the things is you can't always plan for everything. You never know what's going to hit you. We were here in New York City. We were prepared for a, a terror event. All our you know, members had to go through courses at the training academy from the federal government. But nobody saw it coming that two planes were going to fly into the Twin Towers. That was something that was totally unprepared for. Yeah, you can yeah. prepare for a hurricane. You can prepare for you know a nor'easter, but there's always that one event that you're not going to be prepared for. And Chris and I did a previous episode about this. About we called it GIS preparedness. And again, you're never going to be prepared for everything. Having certain things, certain data sets ready to go, is obviously very important. And Chris and I have discussed doing a, a follow-up episode about that but i think quite well is like that mutual aid having you know, we we do mutual aid within the fire service but there should almost be like a gis mutual aid set up and again and having everybody on the same page would go a long way to help that out oh yeah like it, it's funny like kind of contrasting the culture of both steve and i've had experiences on both the public safety responder side but then dealing with the in-office gis culture as well over the years and I remember back 30 years ago it, it you know it, it wasn't GIS it was GIS then but you know, a lot of people were public works guys that did AutoCAD maps and they were protective of that space and even until recently most GI office GI I, I don't say I want to say it a derogatory term but they didn't have experience going out in the field they were very protective of mm -hmm. the data and that was even though it wasn't technically an intellectual property, they treated it as session stuff. So I think that that's going to start changing, especially one of the nice things about NAPSIC is we do push and you participate in a lot with interaction of, you know, how we talk to each other and stuff, you know, exercises and stuff and, and drilling from a technical level. So I think that, you know, and, and Dan, I appreciate your background help with that because I see you there all the time and stuff. But, but you participate and that's, that's, that's even though it's a non-technical skill, but just the fact that that make the successful and have that mutual aid sense, you just need to participate with other people of the same goal. I think from a statewide perspective, we made some pretty significant strides. You know, working with our geospatial information officer, Cy Smith, here in Oregon. One of the, the big initiatives is, you know, having a coordinated statewide response for GIS. Hey, great idea. We've been wanting to do that for a while. And, you know, being able to integrate other state agencies, we have on the emergency management side of the house, a setup to where we have coordination calls with emergency managers and our state agency partners that are reporting out through emergency support functions about what the status of their operations are, what the major stressors are, et cetera. Taking that sort of template for the emergency management side of the house and replicating that to the GIS side of the house and talking about, okay, I do the report out on the overview of the situation with statewide initiatives that we have talk about stuff from the federal partner side of things, and then do an, an agency roundtable to where each state agency talks about primary issues that they have, staffing needs that they have, and what initiatives they have for the next week. So having that kind of standard procedure documented 
the coordination call, we all have Zoom now, or we all have GoToMeeting or conference lines to be able to share screens and talk with one another. The, the remote setup is there, but really having a more coordinated approach. With the wildfires, it, it was close to when we were transitioning to recovery before we implemented that process, but it's paid dividends. People got access to the data that they had been looking for all of the different damage assessments because it was so complex. All that data was dumped into a group for sharing on ArcGIS online. So all we needed to do was add them into the group and they had access to the data. Categories were set up in ArcGIS online to where they could filter whether it's damage assessment or imagery that they're looking for. So it was, we're, we're starting to get a handle for how we're coordinating within the GIS space to address those individuals that yeah, a lot of people on those calls aren't necessarily frontline GIS people to where they're boots on the ground, but they play a key critical role, whether it's producing data or being able to consume the information coming from the field to assist with their programs. And there's also individuals that I'm not a GIS person, but I need to have access to that information because I manage this particular program like housing and community services. They deal a lot with that recovery side of things, dealing with restoration of homes, whether it's the manufactured home parks thing that I talked about earlier. So they need access to that critical data and be able to analyze that information to determine where are we going to devote those state dollars because we're getting money either from federal programs or state allocated budget dollars to be able to address what those key critical needs are. So it's we're starting to build this network and this group of individuals that you know are going to be using that data or producing the data. So we're all in the same space and no one understands what's happening there. So you can't touch it, and that's awesome. You can't touch on it with the the people issue, if you will. Like, how do you interact with with fellow uh, groups with the same goal? What are and you already touched on. My next question is related to the technical challenges. And trust me, we're going to get back to my COVID question because it was a big question. <laughs> so stick it, so stick it, Steve. <laughs> what are some of the, like you described that before, like some of the technical challenges are like unmatched database schemas and then some software that doesn't quite interact. What, are, what, do, you, what do you think the overall, like two of the biggest technical challenges in interoperating Interoperating within GIS is pretty good, but what are some of the technical challenges when different groups do di different technical things, if you will? Yeah, I think the first element was certainly the, the difference in field schemas was a, a big issue and a big concern, especially in working with the housing and community services folks. There's a lot of back and forth questions. And I will say, when you add content to ArcGIS, metadata is <clears throat> not necessarily first and foremost. No. I'll be guilty of that. And, and I'd say even in general, metadata isn't really the first and foremost thing. Um, yeah. Raise your hand if you're good at <laughs> metadata. <laughs> no. I see no hand raised. And in the event that other requests for this data were coming through, our Department of Justice said, hey, hold on. We want to be able to review the request, review the information that you're attending on submitting prior to you releasing that information. I'm sure other states do the same thing as well to have that, that funneling. 
Department of Justice doesn't use GIS. So having to teach and instruct them on how to pull in the data, all of the content was on ARC Online. It's like, okay, I'll download it as a zip file geodatabase and ship it out. They don't have Esri software. So being able to pull down the file geodatabase, okay, it's a little bit of research. Okay, QGIS is an open source solution that's out there. You can pull down the data. It was a little bit difficult, but I'll put it that way, to address what that issue was. And they have a thing about, hey, I want to be able to view that data before you submit it. Totally get it, totally understand. But having to walk them through teaching a non-GIS person how to use GIS on a software platform that I'm not necessarily 100% familiar on. Now, for the most part, State of Oregon is an Esri shop. Did they use QGIS? Yes. Only because I, I said, hey, wow. ins- install it. This is an open source solution that you can use to view that information. It was a little bit wonky because the attachments were in a totally separate layer that they could just add. They weren't associated with the data layer, which was some weird technical stuff happening. I think it's Esri Black Box free at work. <laughs> Being able to at least view that information, we were able to get them there. Looking back, what would we want to do differently? I'd want to set up a hub site to share that content so that when they're able, when they're wanting to view and interact with that information before it's released, they can actually add that to a new map on ARC Online, see that data, click on it, view it, what have you, in a format that it was initially designed and built with. Um, Why not? Why? can't they just review the data through your ArcGIS online? I'm a little confused there. They could. I didn't necessarily have it set up that way at the start. So they were, first off, they did not have Arc Online accounts. Um, I suppose we probably could have added them in there. We're still working on kind of what that aspect of public records requests and how to deal with those types of things. Because honestly, this is the first time that I had encountered a, a massive public records request. In the past, it's okay, I'll send a shapefile over. It's easy to do, boom, done. Uh, but with the sheer amount of data that we were dealing with in the different services, we wanted to send it in a, the zip shapefile format or the zip file geodatabase format. Yeah, it just seems like a lot of work like you said, now they have to download and install QGIS. They're not GIS personnel having to give them some sort of tutorial or they have to learn it on their own. Yeah. But then again, you know, I understand what you're saying. If they don't have AGOL accounts, how do they view it? Unless you make it public, but you probably don't want to make it public. That's some, some thought needs to go into that. Yeah. Definitely. I think one of the solutions I'm looking at is having a secured hub site. We're looking at doing Hub Premium. I think we have that for Oregon or we're starting to do testing on that. So it'll be a little bit easier to share content via that platform. And that would allow them the instant access. They can possibly go and sign up for their own that way and download the data, view and interact with it. But it's that's on the future plan. We haven't quite figured out yeah. how we're going to be addressing that yet. But that was one of those, hmm, how do we deal with that? Because... When you're building these products, you don't necessarily think about, yeah, I could get a a huge public records request for this information. 
So how do you deal with and address yeah. that? Yeah. It, it, so th those were the, the two B's that, that I, that instantly come to mind to me. That's awesome. Getting back to my <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll keep it a little bit more simple. It's like, how is COVID different than anything? Yeah. COVID, I, I think the number one difference is the lead agency played a lot into it. So Oregon Health Authority, all of the information that was pretty much gathered for COVID with the exception of tracking of personal protective equipment was maintained accessible by Oregon Health Authority. They had the connection and the network to pull down the test result data. They have a very secure system that they're pulling that data. They do the number crunching on the back end and boom, you get a report out of that information. They chose to go the route of Tableau for all of their visualizations. I'm not quite sure why, and I have to be a little bit cautious about what I talk about <laughs> for that. <laughs> sure. But I, I think that the biggest difference was that they were managing the incident. They chose to work in a software platform that did not readily integrate with GIS. And we were, we came in later to the game. It was initially all managed with mm -hmm. Oregon Health Authority. Then it got too large of an incident for them to manage. So OEM was brought in to assist and help coordinate those efforts. There's some stuff that happened at higher levels that I probably can't talk about. But yep. I think the, the biggie there was just the fact that you had a, a state agency in charge of managing an event where I'm not quite sure that, that the methodology that they use to visualize information, gather that information, that there was an understanding to where other agencies actually play a role in, in gathering and coordinating that data. I'm trying to be very PC in how I talk about it. So if you guys want to edit, that's fine. No, that's totally good. I, I think it's probably, probably pretty, pretty typical. And we talked about it before is, is that if it's if it's something that's visual and we've been through it before, like we've been, the United States has been through wildlands in the tech in like our technology yeah. days, we've been through wildland fires a lot. We've been through flooding a lot. A pandemic, we've historically had pandemics. They're they were pre pre technology times like the 1970 yeah. uh, pandemic. And we've had some in the 50s and 60s and stuff. But we didn't really have the technology yeah. related to it like we did with the other stuff. So I think it's a new thing. And I think probably when cooler, smarter heads prevail and stuff, they'll figure out, yeah, we got to do this a little differently. We'll learn from it. But I, I think we all probably agree that it was different enough and a lot more challenges that existed that we didn't anticipate. We all probably agree. Yeah. yeah. And, and that goes back to what I was saying before. I, I don't know how you guys handled it in Oregon or state of washington but here in new york there was so much uncoordination in this data and that goes back to my standards we had a lot of issues here in new york for one the the department of health organizations whether it be a, a county department of health or, or a state department of health didn't want to share the data initially because of of hippo which i didn't really understand because you could easily aggregate 
point data up to a polygon and now you're not violating anybody's confidentiality, which I dealt with a lot working at the FDMY. We didn't want to be violating somebody's you know, patient confidentiality. But when we were reporting information like shoot or cardiac arrest, you just easily aggregated up to a polygon. So that was the first issue I saw. But, but like I said, going back to my Tinder is th- this is something that we've seen across New York state where everybody's reporting their data differently. And I've been sitting in on a, a weekly call with New York state personnel throughout this state. That's one of been one of our topics is what do we use here in Nassau County, which is the county I live in right outside New York City and, and Suffolk County, which is the, the county further out east on Long Island. You know, they've been doing it by the townships or, or the villages, whereas New York City has been going by zip code. And again, now, how do you compare, compare, especially Nassau County that butts up against the Queens County in New York City, when you're reporting the data differently, it's hard to get that comparison of information. And again, a totally different scenario than wildfires or flooding, but it it comes back to there should be some sort of standard of how everybody's reporting their data, because now you can't share the data. You're, You're looking at apples and oranges when even if you're looking at it on a web map and trying to bring it all together. I'll say from the Oregon perspective in dealing with reporting of case information, Oregon Health Authority took on all of that. All of the local public health authorities report up to Oregon Health Authority. They were the ones that chose to, we're going to aggregate information by county, and that is how we're going to report out that data. So I, I think on their end, they had a pretty good understanding for how they wanted to report out that information, but there's other elements that I were kind of missed out on, like an opportunity to integrate with other systems. So I I think that was kind of where a lot of my frustrations were for the COVID responses. Number one, not knowing what other sort of information we're wanting to track as a part of it. And you had a, a separate state agency leading the response. So there were probably some communication issues that were happening. I know we tried to integrate planning sections together to try and get to a point to where we're able to collaborate and coordinate. I think we got close to there. The data and informational products that they produced just did not integrate well with GIS. Right now, the stuff that we're dealing with for reporting out of COVID cases, I'm actually scraping their Tableau, converting it on the back end to a GIS service. It's not an, an ideal scenario, but there's enough utilization of our stuff because we actually got ours up and running before they had Tableau. And that's what I believe is also used by John Hopkins for their data. So it's just, it's messy. It, it was a lot yeah. messier than what it probably should have been. You know, one of the, the key components that I think is going to be coming out of this particular event, if we can ever get COVID off the map, is the the fact that when we're looking at dealing with an emergency, whether it's a pandemic or all hazards event or a man-made event, that we first off look at opportunities to integrate with systems that already exist and are out there. 
If we build and design something in a machine-readable format to where even if it's like an online database or table that we can pull from, a way for us to be able to take that information, integrate it with GIS, because once we get it in there, we can put that into various other products to be able to share kind of that complete situational picture. Yeah, and kind of piqued my interest. So you said in Oregon, and you're reporting the data by county. And again, that kind of goes back to... My, my earlier question is there's no standard on, on how to do this. Mm. And now Chris and I had discussed this when the initial outbreak of COVID happened, re- reporting the data by County was, was okay. But then as the, the numbers increased and increased reporting it by the County level, again, here at, in the more suburban and, and urban settings of New York, reporting the data by county meant nothing yeah. so we, we had to get down to a more granular level and like you said now you had two counties reporting it by villages new york city reporting it by zip code i forget what westchester county which is just north of new york city i i don't remember how they were reporting their data but again there was no standard of anything i i was also i had thought about zip code but then i was told you know, the other areas of the country you're going to have issues with zip codes. Then a county is, I, I was also told that's a problem. Like up in the state of Massachusetts, they don't really use county boundaries. Mm-hmm. So what do they use now? Uh, which touches, you know, portions of upstate New York. So again, you have that issue of comparing you know, the data. Is, is census track the, the right answer? I, I don't know. Yeah. But my point is, yeah, is some I, I, minds need to come together and say, hey, th- this is the standard that we need to be reporting data, as long as other standards, like I mentioned, with, with data schemas and stuff. Yeah, I, my, my fantasy would be to reform the census tract process a bit, realign those to more geographically oriented type boundaries, whether it's they're clipped on jurisdiction and then they're aggregated a little bit more in detail and based on the dense urban density and stuff so that you can get that correlate that demographic data that's in that track but it's general enough that you could do some predictive hey, if there's you know there's a pattern if you're doing like damage assessment for example and you just say like all oh, this is messed up then you can get the demographic data there for that reasonable locale but <laughs> Whenever I look at census tracts, it doesn't make sense because they cross the demographics yeah. cross multiple neighborhoods that could be yeah. really different. So we I, run I, into that issue quite a bit too with a lot of those larger census tracts incorporating both the rural and urban settings. Yeah. And like I earlier mentioned about tracking the economic status from recovery to wildfires, we run into the same issue there. You can pull down ACS community survey data, but if it's at the census tract, that isn't necessarily going to get you what you want. Oh, yeah, you can have wild swings. And, and, yeah. I'm not saying census tract is the right answer. I'm just, yeah. it's, I'm just throwing it out there. But like I said, county is almost like too big of an area to report on. And granted, yeah. for some states, granted, Daniel, I don't know your the geographics of, of where you're in Oregon. Again, I look at it, county here in, in New York is not a good, it's, it's too big of a polygon, especially in a more dense area. You know, I, I live in a county 
with you know close to a population of close to two million, which is the, the same population as the state of Nebraska. So again, it, it's hard to use those various levels. And it seems yeah. to be like they, there needs to be a smaller area to report data on that that's common throughout you know the U.S. Yeah, but I don't know what that is though. And and I will say related to reporting of COVID information, I think a lot of it was driven by CDC guidance and states interpreted the guidance on how they wanted to report out that information. There's, I'm sure, legal beagles that are on the back end that are looking at the HIPAA stuff versus what can be logistically reported out based upon the data that's entered into the system. Oregon, the daily reports, which are actually Monday through Friday reports, aggregate by county, the there's like a bi-weekly, I think, or every couple of weeks, a report is pushed out that has, and it's a PDF that shows zip codes and approximate number of cases by zip code. But due to privacy concerns, it's if it's less than 10 cases, it gets assigned a zero through nine value. It's all over the place. And that zip code level breakdown is not in GIS anywhere. So being able to try and, and massage that data, it, it became too cumbersome. And from my perspective, it's very much a, well, I'm going to pull the data from the authoritative source. I don't want to be putting ourselves in a position to where we're not updated with what they have. It's bad enough that I have to convert and translate the information they're already publishing into a service that I have that's shared with partners in the public. So it's we're dealing with a very fine line if we had to do this all over again, I think the first step is talking about what products are we going to be using to solve it and then start talking about what are those data standards? How are we going to aggregate that information? It's ugly. No matter how to slice the pie, it's ugly. Oh, cool. This has been an awesome talk and thanks Dan for hanging out with us. Is there anything that you want to add or pitch or things that are kind of coming up in the future that you want to impart to our guests? Yeah, I think the, the big thing is as we progress down the road of the damage assessment project, there will be some really neat stuff coming as a part of that. But also for those listeners that are state emergency management GIS folks that want to be Engaged in a group that's talking about some of these big things at the national level. Um, I'm one of the co-chairs for the National States Geographic Information Council, their Geospatial Preparedness Committee. And that's a great forum that we can talk at the state level about what issues we're dealing with, recent lessons learned. There's some neat projects that we have on the horizon that we're going to be working on over the next year or two related to, um, first and foremost, I believe the project is about resources reference guide. So if we're dealing with a particular type of event and we need access to data, people, or tools, these are things that are out there and available. I think the first thing we're going to be looking at is dealing with what imagery solutions are out there. Now, one of the first things that folks tend to request is, gosh, show me the aerial footage of the disaster area. And what sort of vendors are able to provide that information, whether it's a paid or a free service? Because I know working on this side of things, I feel the pain. I know what the pain is. How can we address what that pain is? This group is also in the past, they produced the emergency management GIS contacts 
list, which was an Excel spreadsheet that showed emergency management GIS contacts state by state. And we're looking to maybe expand upon that in the future. Some neat stuff. If folks are interested in that, they can certainly send me an email and, and get signed up for that. It's, it's a great organization to be a part of and a great way for us to be able to talk about lessons learned from states and learn from one another. And we'll include all uh, Dan's contact information and our mostly update, updated <laughs> blog posts on net, mappingtechandpublicsafety.com. <laughs> uh, I'm super bad about updating a website, but we'll make sure that's in there. So uh, we'll leave a link to uh, any information you want, Dan, and then your contact information on our blog, mappingtechandpublicsafety.com. Also, I do want to announce as well, for the NAPSIC Foundation, we are having our summit coming up in April 6th through the 8th. It's a, unfortunately, it's a virtual summit, but which means that more people can participate since we're not traveling. For more information on that, visit the NAPSIC Foundation web, website at napsgfoundation.org. So anyway, thanks for hanging out with Steve and I today, Dan. Yeah, sure I really appreciate it, Dan. Happy, happy to chat with you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mapping Tech in Public Safety. This is Chris and Steve. Visit our blog at mappingtechinpublicsafety.com.